Hello, dear listener. I hope you're very well. Welcome to the latest episode of the Kino Quickies podcast. Our film for this edition is The Impassive Footman from 1932. 1932? That's 90 years ago. Why would we be talking about a 90-year-old film, you may well wonder? Well, because the Kino Quickies podcast is all about quota quickies, those much maligned films that were made in the UK in the 1930s. And this is not just a podcast. It's also a series of live screenings of quota quickies, which take place at the lovely Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, just a hop, skip and a jump from London Bridge Station. We're currently well into season two, so if you'd like to join us for a future screening, you can find out which films we're showing and also find a link to the ticket booking site at kinoquickies.com. There's also some info there about what a quota quickie actually is, just in case you don't know. Learn all about them and impress your friends. Come along to the Kino, we'd love to see you. Is that all the housekeeping done? I believe so. I think we can now go over to the Kino to get a sense of the sheer, raw excitement of a Kino quickie screening. The recording took place on the afternoon of October 23rd, 2022, and the audience was a bit soggy because it was a day of torrential rain, but they were cheered by some drinks from the well-stocked Kino bar. Right, are we recording? Welcome to this gathering of the uh, tofu-munching wokerati of southeast <laughs> London. Three days ago, that would have been biting satire, but it's, it's old hat now. Okay, so obviously this is uh, season two, film two of Kino Quickies, the Impassive Footman. My name is Dominic Delaghi. Over there we have our resident quota cookie expert, Dr. Lawrence Knapp of King's College London. And then uh, somebody, somewhere, oh, there's Mel. Mel is in the middle there. Uh, that's Mel Byron. She's, the, uh, she's a comedian and the co-host of the Talking Pictures TV podcast, which you should definitely subscribe to and submit reviews to, especially if you're a woman. I believe you need more women. Exactly. Well, do it. And r- recording the sound is Robin, as usual, for the podcast. And then over there is Sam, because Sam is going to be doing Robin's job in a couple of weeks' time, because Robin's off to join the Ladyboys of Bangkok for uh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, uh, The Impassive Footman is a cracking film. It's, uh, it's about an unhappy marriage, a potential affair, scandal, dark secrets from the past, all the good stuff. And it's, it's the earliest film in our season. It's 1932. I think everything else is like 1935 or something. It's the only one from Ealing Studios. Some say it's the first Ealing film. I've read that places. I'm not sure if that's true. Did Lawrence grumble there? That's, uh, yeah, well, possibly not. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and it's obviously well before the, the glory days of Ealing, like, you know, Lavender Hill Mob and Passport to Pimlico and stuff. It was produced by Basil Dean, who was a man of the theatre before he uh, invested in, in Ealing. Nobody in this film is credited as director. No, no, not the credits of the film anyway. Some people say it's... I, I just need to interrupt myself here to say that we had a technical malfunction at this stage of the proceedings and lost the sound for a few seconds. What I was saying in the bit that we lost is that some sources say that The Impassive Footman was directed by its producer, Basil Dean, whilst others suggest the director was Graham Cutts. I then went on to say that the film is based on an original story by the writer Sapper, a.k.a. H.C. McNeil, who wrote the Bulldog Drummond stories. Bulldog Drummond was a character who was a product of the First World War in that after serving in the trenches, he then became a bit bored of civilian life and became an adventurer for hire. Now, back 
to me. Basically had an uh, adrenaline overload in the First World War and then became like an adventurer after the First World War. And this film has a kind of First World War connection, although it's kind of 14 years after the war ended. The main character and the situation are both kind of products or legacies of the First World War, although we don't discover that until the very, very end of the film. The film has a great ending. And Steve Chibnall agrees with me on that, because Steve Chibnall wrote the book Quota Quickies, and he says of this film, this is the quote, just let me go with the, I, I like doing quotes. The film may be melodramatic and hopelessly stagey in its acting styles. Not sure I agree about that. Maybe him, Brian there, bottom left. In its portrait of Marwood, a selfish, domineering, hypochondriac magnate, and the alienation suffered by his wife and servants, it offers both feminist and socialist critiques of the dominant order. When we first see the eponymous footman reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, we know we are in for something a little more radical than usual, and the ending does not disappoint. And the, it does have a great ending. Don't fall asleep before the ending, because you'll miss the best bit. It doesn't have a particularly starry cast. We've got George Curzon as the footman. Alan Jays and Betty Stockfeld as this kind of toxic couple at the centre of it all. And Owen Nares, that's the guy, uh, as Brian Daventry. Brian, um, odd performance. He does lots of kind of hangdog staring into middle distance. And I think Brian was, if you could have a romantic hero now, you probably wouldn't call him Brian. Maybe he did more in those days. The film received a small distribution in the US, which is quite unusual, um, under a different title, Woman in Bondage and or Woman in Chains. It seems to have two different titles. This is a fantastic film. I feel sorry for people who aren't here. And the good news is the usual, if you've been here before, the standard format, we're going to watch two, is it two trailers? Two Talking Pictures TV trailers, different ones now. We've got new ones, you'll be glad to hear. Then we'll watch the film. Little break while we set up the mics, and then we'll have the Q and A with myself, Lawrence, and Mel. That's it. We'll see you in an hour and a half. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. So the audience at the Kino, who are slowly drying out, are now settling down to watch the impassive footman. Will they enjoy it as much as I do? But we must leave them to it for now because there's not much point in us recording an audience watching a film. But instead, indulge me for a few minutes while I offer you. As an alternative to the pure visceral thrill of watching a quota quickie, this detailed, illustrated synopsis. As we begin, we're treated to a shot of an ocean liner slicing its way through the water at night time. A young woman stands on deck, gazing wistfully out to sea. She's dressed in an evening gown, as if about to attend a sophisticated onboard gathering. This is Grace Marwood, played by Betty Stockfeld, and she's one of three, or is it four, main characters. She smiles at some private memory and blows confetti from the pages of a book she has in her hand. Some revellers pass by. A ship steward approaches her. Mr Marwood is waiting for you, madam. I'll come now, thank you. Grace reluctantly returns to the cabin she shares with her older, unattractive husband, John Marwood, played by Alan Jays. He's getting ready for bed. He's a hypochondriac and is fastidiously spraying the room with some sort of antiseptic. <laughs> Germs here now. You were sent for me. Where have you been? It's ten o'clock. Yes, only ten o'clock. My thermometer's on the dressing table. Revelers pass their window. There's a dance on tonight, John. Yes, don't I know it. The fools running up and down past that window. Don't they realise there's a sick man on board? She pokes a thermometer into his mouth. I can't think why you didn't bring Simpson for all this. Can't stand the fellow. 
too damn mysterious. Why'd you keep him? He's cheap. Hate servants anyhow. That's our first mention of Simpson, the impassive footman of the title. Well? Below normal. Nothing to worry about. What do you mean, nothing to worry about? I'm below normal, I'm below normal, aren't I? Highly dangerous in the tropics. Grace goes for a walk on deck to escape John's unrelenting misery and stops to listen to some music drifting in on the breeze. Along comes the ship's doctor, Brian Daventry, played by Owen Nares. Good evening. Oh, good evening. Haven't seen you since lunch. Cries this caprice. Don't you love it? Yes. Played by a master, too. Oh, who is it? Maurice Bonner. Greatest of them all, I think. They spend some time together strolling on deck, and they obviously know each other quite well. There are definite vibes between them. You know, we seem to see a lot of things the same way, don't we? Yes. That's what helped to make the trip so wonderful. Wonderful. Cairo, Naples. Do you remember the fortune teller who told us some very definite things? Very definite indeed. Thought we were honeymooning. What was it? Three girls and four boys. Oh, if only this trip would go on and on and on. We could make it go on. No. I'm not talking about ships. Nor am I. Grace, I'm talking about something that's become very precious to me. What? Your friendship. You know, I've never had companionship like this before. My life's just been work and work until... I came along? Exactly. And I want to keep your friendship. Grace, I want to see you again in London. Oh, you, you don't want to see me again? As a friend, yes. But do you believe in platonic friendships? I don't. Except in books. Well, if I ever offend... That might be the trouble. Perhaps I wouldn't mind being offended. Two years later and back on dry land, nothing much seems to have changed for John Marwood, who sits by the fire in his opulent living room, a rug over his legs, buzzing for Simpson the footman. Down in the servants' quarters, Simpson, with a face like thunder, puts down his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and goes off to attend to his master. You rang, sir? A tense exchange ensues between the cantankerous John and the supercilious Simpson, the former making the latter perform various demeaning personal tasks. Hey, Simpson. Sir? Precisely how much do I pay you per annum? Sixty-five pounds, sir. Perhaps you might take a glance round this room. Unattractive as it is, I have to live in it. And the fire in its present condition is neither useful nor ornamental. Thank you, sir. He attends to the fire and is about to leave when... Simpson. Sir? Just one small point. I am quite aware that my comfort is a matter of the completest indifference to everyone in this household. But to be an invalid, Simpson, is not necessarily to enjoy paying £65 a year for nothing. I shall bear that in mind, sir. The amount is £65, is it not? In wages, sir, yes. But you pay me in addition... Ninepence a week for my insurance and the bill for my laundry, which varies. I will prepare a complete statement. I shouldn't like to deceive you, sir, in so important a matter. John is silently fuming at the damn fellow's impudence when in walks Grace wearing a hat and gloves. Where are you off to? Concert. Why? You're not interested in music? You've no idea what I'm interested in. Anyway, I haven't heard any good music for months. And I'm not going to miss the chance of hearing Maurice Bora again. Waste of money. What was the name of that young doctor we met? Which one? We, we've met so many. The one that was writing the book on the pleasure cruise. Pleasure cruise, yes. I remember him. Daventry. Yes, that's the man. Seems to be making quite a name for himself. 
read a paper to the Surgical Society last night. Made quite a sensation. It seems as though we've dropped into this marriage just at the point at which Grace has had enough. There's nothing really the matter with you except selfishness. What? Selfishness. What did you say? You always were conveniently deaf, John. At the concert, the same music played by the same musician as the recording she heard on the boat with Brian, Grace sits on the front row and seems unhappy. In the foyer as she exits, her face lights up as she bumps into Brian. Grace? What? Pleasant surprise. Oh, Billy, I thought you said you wouldn't come. Thanks, There's another heavy shower. I know. In the taxi, they hold hands and Brian leans in earnestly. When am I going to see you again? This time next month. Grace. That was our bargain. Oh, Brian, I'm so delighted with your success. Are you? He suddenly kisses her. She seems shocked. Now I must see you again more often. We can't go on like this, just meeting casually once a month. But, Brian, we, we can't go on at all now. Grace, this can't mean goodbye. It must, Brian. But think what it means to us, Grace. It's our whole life. I know, I know. But there are other lives to be considered. It's impossible. Grace, we've only got one life. Goodbye. I won't say goodbye. She gets out of the cab in anguish and walks up to the front door. The impassive Simpson, who has observed all the goings-on through a gap in the curtains, wordlessly lets her in. Up in John's room, despite some barbed comments from both parties, Grace doesn't appear to have given up on the marriage entirely. Oh, I want to be fair. Listen, John, let's go away together somewhere, anywhere. Switzerland for a month or so, winter sports. You'd regain your health and, and then we could make a fresh start. A fresh start? Yes. Before it's too late. Are you trying to tell me that you're in love with someone else? Yes. I wondered why you'd been so cheerful lately. Now I'm beginning to understand. May I ask what you propose to do? That depends on you. Grace leaves John and sits by the fire in another room, fantasising about switching his nightly tonic for poison. Some days later, a nasty row develops between John and Grace. She threatens to walk out and he attempts to physically restrain her, taunting her about her nasty little backstairs affair. He demands to know the name of his rival and grabs her. Tell me now. <laughs> Shut up. Don't behave like a servant girl. Let go. <laughs> Let go of me. You, you... Into this walks Simpson. What the devil do you want? Telephone, sir, for Mrs. Marwood. Well, didn't you put it through? She takes the call with John hovering close by. Hello? I told you we couldn't say goodbye. Oh, hello. Grace, when do I see you again? Yes, sir. I thought the music wonderful. Where were you? Who is it? Let me write when I have a free day. But, Grace... Goodbye. Who was that? Oh, an old school friend. You wouldn't like her. Liar. Liar. It was that rotten lover of yours. He grabs her arm, squeezing it painfully, but then clutches his chest and sits down on the bed. Simpson, who has been listening outside the room, has anticipated Grace's next request for a taxi, and she goes off to pack. He attends to John, getting him into bed. As he does so, he suggests that he should contact a specialist about John's supposed condition. Given this affirmation of all his worst fears, John wants to hear more. 
Simpson claims a member of his family had all the same symptoms as John, but was unable to have it treated for lack of money. John demands to know what these symptoms were. Some nights you wake up hot and sweating, and in the morning your body is icy cold. You have a dull pain at the base of the neck. It grows worse and worse. You can't sleep. You grow thin. Your body dies, all except the eyes. But the mind goes on and on, mixing pain with thoughts of the past until the agony makes you want to scream aloud. In the end, they have to tie you down in bed mad, sir. She died in an agony of pain and remorse. Who? My wife, sir. Shall I fetch you a hot water bottle, sir? It may relieve you. John is shaken and does not require a hot water bottle. He waves Simpson away, who, upon exiting the room, allows a small smirk to flit across his face. Over at Brian's stylish serviced apartment, his work is interrupted by the unexpected arrival of Grace. Grace, you're here at last. Oh, Brian. My dear, you're shivering. Why, what's happened? Here, let, let me have your wrap. Now, sit down and calm yourself. Now, have you had dinner? No. Let's dine together. If you want to. <laughs> want to? I've dreamt of it for two years. Oh. Now, where should we go? Embassy? Carriages? Let's, let's just stay here. All right. I had no idea you lived in such a sweet place. It is jolly, isn't it? My only home. One may as well be comfortable. He puts on some music. He seems to think he's on a promise. Maybe he is. Our tune. Perfect host. Grace, do you realise? Day after day, night after night, I've longed for this. I've, I've held conversations with you seated in that chair. Then I've woken up to reality and kicked myself for not getting on with my job. It is reality, Brian. I'm here. And here you are going to stay. I've told him. I've said I'm never going back. I'm glad. But you don't know my husband. He'll never divorce me. We'll see him. I'm so afraid for you, Brown. He'll ruin your career if he can. I'll chance that. People always criticize a doctor. He's never been my patient. What can he do? You're bound to suffer. Honors, official things, I don't know. So long as I've got you. You really mean that? You know I do. Don't you? Don't you? Yes, I suppose so. Just as I've always known about myself, since I met you on that boat. Then you'll stay. She smiles and nods. They finally kiss. They're just getting down to business when... Oh, what? Brian untangles himself from the clinch and angrily answers the phone to a Dr Bartlett. After a few seconds, we realise Brian is disturbed by the call and he promises to be somewhere straight away. By a terrible quirk of fate, the patient about whom Dr. Bartlett is so concerned is very well known to Grace. How long has your husband complained of this feeling of numbness in his spine? He only mentioned it today. Is he really ill? Why did Bartlett ring you up? Bartlett thinks your husband's very ill indeed. Do you mean... He might. If Bartlett's right. I'm the only man who's willing to operate in such cases. It can't be true. He's cried wolf so often. You couldn't possibly know. But I laughed at him. He'd laugh at us if he knew. Grimly, they cancel their fruity plans for the evening and leave together for the home Mrs. Grace Marwood still shares with her husband. 
At the Marwood home, after examining the patient, Brian spells out his intentions to Grace. There's only one thing to be done. You mean? If you and your husband approve, I propose to operate. But I should like Dr. Bartlett to assure you there's no alternative. I was telling Mrs. Marwood that before you arrived. If we operate, there's a chance. If not, I'm afraid it's only a matter of a few weeks. Then of course you must try. When? Tomorrow. Grace receives word that John would like to see her. She goes to his bedside. Have they told you? Yes, John. I'm sorry. I can quite understand that. Might interfere with your plans in respect to my unknown rival. That's unkind of you. Well, you are hardly a model of delicacy yourself, are you? Yesterday, when I was in pain, you spoke quite bluntly of your lover. Surely I can... But I didn't know then about this, or I'd never have spoken. John, all that is ended. Ended? Yes. Because after my operation, I intend to live mainly abroad with you. Best for my health and your morals. As the conversation progresses, Grace tries to persuade John that another doctor might be more suitable. He is dead set on having Brian do the operation. She inadvertently lets slip that she's seen Brian recently and hurriedly concocts the clumsy lie that she saw him at a Lady Grantley's home last week. Suspicious of this and with realisation dawning on John as to who Grace's secret lover might be, he telephones the Grantley home after Grace leaves his bedside, only to find that Lady Grantley has been abroad for some time. Downstairs in the drawing room, the true awfulness of the situation is clear to Grace and Brian. It's a risky operation and only Brian has the skills to carry it out successfully. If he saves John's life, they will be separated because John will take Grace abroad with him. But what if the operation fails? Brian, there were moments last night when the idea of murder came into my mind. But don't you see, Grace? I don't let him die. But, Brian, you might fail. You've always told me it's the first operation of its kind. It may be. But John Marwood must not die. Not after what you and I have said. They embrace, but are interrupted. Quite a charming little scene. Oh, so this is the old school friend you met at the concert. No wonder I shouldn't like him. Court banged to rights, John threatens divorce, which would lead to social suicide for Grace and, it appears, the real possibility that Brian would no longer be able to practice medicine with such a scandal on his CV. One silver lining, though, is that Brian believes he is no longer compelled to perform John's operation. Either you operate tomorrow or I shall instruct my lawyers and the world will be in for another first-class scandal. Patients sometimes die under operations, Marwin. I hope this one won't, Mr. Daventry, for both our sakes. Not to mention my wife's. Should anything happen to me, I shall leave a letter to be opened at my death. I shall make no accusations. I shall merely state with the witness's signature attached, the estimable Simpson, what I have had the misfortune to see. And if people are uncharitable enough to draw their own conclusions. I see. In other words, it's heads you win, tails I lose, eh? Not quite. In the happy event of the operation being successful, we both win. I am restored to my health and you lay the foundations of a still more brilliant reputation. You see, I'm in a very difficult position. The one man who would benefit most by my death is the one man in whose hands I must place my life. Brian leaves. 
The operation will take place tomorrow. Later that evening, John has composed a letter to his lawyer and has had it witnessed by Simpson. He pockets the letter, presumably with the intention of posting it. Is there anything else you require, sir? No. No, just one thing. Your wages are 65 pounds, I think you said. Yes, sir. Plus washing. You are wrong, Simpson. 100 without washing in the future. Thank you, sir. And on that cliffhanger, we're going to tear ourselves away from 1932 and the impassive footman and return to 2022, the Kino Cinema and the Q&A with our special guest, Mel Byron. After the Q&A, spoiler alert, we will return to the film to find out how everything plays out. Will Brian perform the operation? If so, will John survive it? Will Grace be taken abroad to live out the rest of her days in gloomy isolation with John, hundreds of miles away from her beloved Brian? And just who the flipping heck is the mysterious Simpson? He definitely has some secrets up his sleeve. We'll find out all of this in 20 minutes or so, and it will be spoilerific to the max, so be warned. But let's rush back to the Kino because they have another film in straight after us. It's Lyle Lyle Crocodile, by the way, which I can recommend. And find out what everybody made of the Impassive Footman. So, the Impassive Footman, who enjoyed the film? <laughs> Ray. How much enthusiasm was that? I can't quite tell. It seemed to be <laughs> moderate. Okay. Okay. That's there was a lot of laughter, wasn't there? There was a lot of laughter. I'm not sure it was in it, it was intended when the filmmakers made it that we should all laugh in those places, but there was a lot of laughter coming out from the audience. My my favorite funny moment is when she says, um, you've got a nice place here. Like, it, it is jolly, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um there is this uh situation with this film where it says at IMDb, the font of all knowledge, that the film was directed by Basil Dean. Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London, who's just sitting over there, said on social media, so it must be true the other day, that it was directed by Graham Cutts. What is the truth of this matter, Mel and Lawrence? Well, I suppose the truth is we don't really know what the actual situation is. But the early trade paper notices saying, oh, look, you know, Basil Dean's new collection of films says that this is going to be directed by Graham Cutts. And then the re- some of the reports say, Graham Cutts on the floor with Basil Dean's... But notice that it's not... There is no director credited on the film. And why would that be? That I've never seen that before. I, I've seen it with one other film, which was... I think it's called something like As You Desire Me. It's an American film that... It's so terrible, nobody wanted to be associated <laughs> with it from the 40s. But I, I think what's interesting, for me, what's interesting about this film is, and I think this might answer the question, although we don't know for sure, is it does seem to be a film of two halves. So it bobs along in in a pretty non-spectacular way at the beginning we got lots of exposition and then suddenly we get this scene with George Curzon as the as the footman and it's all it's lit in a very particular way and he looks a bit like Dracula and when he's shouting at, at Marwood and you think whoa where did that come from and then later there's the hospital scene and and it looks like oh somebody's been watching blackmail and <laughs> and it all looks very it's just so different and it did occur to me did one day Basil Dean wake up and go no no I've been doing it all wrong I, I've got to do it this way but now that 
that there may be this idea that maybe it was Dean or Cutts or a combination of the two. I think, I think that might explain yeah, it. So if one half was one by one director, uh, which way? that or perhaps, I mean, Basil Dean was a big, you know, he was a big theatre impresario, theatre director. So he would have been directing the actors, I think. Whereas Graham Cutts had a long career in silent films and was still directing films like like musicals for for VIP at this point over she goes totally fab so he was like very much a cinema person so i think that would be that combination that basil would do the actors and graham would be like oh let's set it up like this and like here's a, like that bit when in the hospital it's pretty much silent film and that that bit where she's like thinking about whether to poison him and you get those yeah. two bottles that that's totally silent cinema well lots of Owen Nair's performance is silent cinema well, that is looking out true. space oh and my goodness yeah isn't isn't he just a bit I don't want to say wouldn't I'm going to say wouldn't uh, <laughs> I've said it now uh, but yeah and also I mean there's that lovely tracking shot at the end when we when George Curzon suddenly becomes not impassive and there's a big smile and that follows him down the stairs and that's totally unlike anything we've seen so far in this film so it does speak to two different hands I think at work here I do, I, yeah, and, and I think that might explain a lot. I mean, also, I don't know, maybe Graham Cutts walked away because Basil, everything I, I know, everything I've read about Basil Dean is that he was an absolute nightmare to work with. He was one of those hugely creative people that a lot of people put up with, and, and I think we've all been there, um, because they're very creative and very talented, but they're an absolute nightmare. He was known for being a tyrant and a bully, and... Maybe Graham Cutts just walked. We don't know because one assumes they didn't film in sequence, as was often the case. So maybe Graham went, I'm done here. <laughs> I'm out of here. And and that might mean why there's no there's no credited director. I don't know. We're, I, I guess we're speculating, but it's an interesting... Both of them, Graham Cutts and Basil Dean, have reputations that aren't that great in some ways. But both of them have men of achievements. Because Graham Cutts, he's quite well known... This is why I called him Salieri before. He's, he seems to be the guy who tried to hold back Hitchcock. Is that not? Go on, Lawrence. Go on, spit it out. Go on. <laughs> he is the guy who worked with who, who on whose films Hitchcock was the assistant director. Mm. So Hitchcock was junior to him in the silent period. In, in the silent period in his early career, um, and obviously Hitchcock later on when he became Hitchcock and was being interviewed by Truffaut and all that, you know, being lauded. You know, he he was quite happy to say quite frequently, oh, well, of course, you know, it was quite, it was a bit restricting working in the silent British silent cinema because, you know, everybody was totally untalented and I was the shining light and everybody else was a bit crap. That debate kind of reappeared uh, relatively recently when, and I've forgotten the name of the film, the White Peacock, I think, was kind of reappeared, and which is a, a, a cuts film, which Hitchcock worked on. And it was sort of like the way in which it was publicised. It was like, oh my God, the last Hitchcock, here it is. And actually, cuts make, you know, there, there are surviving quite a lot of cuts' films, and they're kind of br brilliant. Like, 
the wonderful story and the passionate adventure both kind of amazing films and of course the rat you know he like we're going to have Ivan Novella later on in the season Ivan Novella's big sort of like breakthrough hit was a film called The Rat and that's directed by Graham Cutts and it's incredibly cinematic it's got a massively sort of mobile camera that moves through the nightclub it's beautifully directed so did he do cocaine as well is that he did cocaine as well which only survives in a kind of fragment but is kind of fascinating movie so Hitchcock was very rude about cuts and cuts obviously at the point where Hitchcock was super famous and being interviewed by everybody like nobody cared about cuts because you know his films couldn't be seen and Hitchcock was saying oh well he was a bit crap and I was the one who was totally fab but I don't think that's true so the winner wrote the history there yeah basically and you two were both rude about Basil Dean but um (laughs) (laughs) he seems to be seems to have achieved I mean because he, he was a person of the man of the theatre wasn't he yeah yeah he founded Liverpool Rep amongst other things yeah um, and, and what didn't think much of this cinema business but then chucked all the money into uh ATP yeah yeah which then went on to become Ealing I mean it was still filmed at Ealing, but it went on to become Ealing Studios but yeah I mean he was responsible for ATP and 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 you know to be fair to him um you know he spotted some really big stars and a couple of years after this he made a film well he made a film called Lorna Dune which was actually for made to showcase his own wife, Victoria Hopper, but he gave Margaret Lockwood her first film role. We could debate whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, but he did uh, give George Formby his film break. Um, yes. Know, make of that off you what you will. <laughs> and he was cut up, but he was, he was kind of highfalutin kind of guy who was into his authors and stuff, but also he championed George Formby and Gracie Fields, which yeah. seems a bit... Quite I think I think he was he was a good money man as well. He was a good producer. I think I think he knew how to assemble the right ingredients uh, to create a film and to keep people together. And and so as a producer, I think he was much better than as as a director. And having sat through Lorna Dune, I can <laughs> attest. To that. I think so. yes, yeah, that's absolutely true. Like he starts up. ATP, you know, it's called Associated Talking Pictures. So it is about sound. It doesn't, you know, Ealing Studios existed before sound as a kind of silent studio. As a building. As a a space. Mm. But um, ATP is something he found to exploit the fact that sound means that a theatre guy can... So he does... His early productions are kind of a bit like this. You know, they they really are theatre for the screen. There's like Escape he makes which is from a John Galsworthy play. He makes lots of relatively famous plays that he has produced on the stage, really. Um, and then, like, ta-da! Who does he discover? George Formby. And, oh, who else? Oh, Gracie Fields. And, like, newsflash, they are super, super, you know, bringing the money in, and he's quite happy to do that. So, although it's not his kind of movie... He is like, okay, she, you know, these these two are going to make me loads and loads of money, so let's let's roll with it. He's experiencing the reality of having an owning a studio, isn't he, or being in charge of a studio? Yeah, and I think he was he was a good businessman, and and you know, running a studio is is a business. Of course, it's creative, but it's a business, and and you know, from from there, he went on to co-found Ensa of all things, 
and, and ran that. What centre? Um, the Entertainment National Services Association. Oh, no, what, concert ev- parties. Yeah, it's not the every night something awful. But, <laughs> he was, but yeah, during the I think he founded it in about 1940, and that was the whole idea was that you know, that people would travel around do the concert parties for for. Um, the servicemen, and of course, who were who was travelling? It was George Formby, George Gracie Fields, yeah. Windsor Davis, Melvin Hayes. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, no. yeah, not quite, but yeah, <laughs> same with that same idea, sort of absolutely. In the quote that I read at the beginning, I mentioned that Steve Chibnall talked about the melodramatic acting. And last week or two weeks ago, we had a member of the audience who was sort of complaining about some histrionic acting in the Last Journey. Could I ask the audience, what did you think about the acting? Anybody got a, a view on that? I really found Brian and his doleful expressions and his looking really quite depressing to look at. Right. I, didn't, I, I didn't appreciate him at all, uh, yeah. at any point, really. What about the, what about the rest of them? Anybody, any sort of... I, didn't, I, I thought Steve was quite kind of unfair about that, the, about the acting in general. I mean, the bit where he, like, leans into the chair and says you know i'm i'm like basically when he uh, spoilers where he murders yeah, him yeah. by getting him excited that's pretty yeah, histrionic that's, yeah <laughs> but it's because uh, the chap over there with the beard there. it's over the top but thinking about how actors on a stage act to project their face over distance it feels to me like they're they're almost still doing that kind of acting so it's hilarious because you're watching it on on a film, and we don't what we don't see that on film anymore. But it it felt like a play being turned into a film, and it kind of makes sense in that thing of, of yeah, their expressions being very over the top and dramatic pauses, and yeah, I love it. But I love it because of, it's funny. You're only a couple I years into the, to the sound era as well, so people are still oh, in there's particularly Brian, all that kind of oh, looking away and then look this way, look that way. <laughs> That's silent acting, you know. Well, I mean, I, I think actually that, 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 like what you're saying, that sort of sense of um, a kind of over-the-topness, that's not silent acting, actually. The silent bits that you see are the, are the montage where he goes into the theatre and it's, it, it's, it's, it, it, this is theatre acting on the screen, which a silent director wouldn't... That's why I think it's, it's about Basil Dean learning the ropes of, of sound cinema. I mean, it's something that's often said about early sound cinema, isn't it? That it's They're basically filmed plays. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why some of those shots, and especially that tracking shot right at the end, doesn't kind of fit in with what we know about it being a filmed play, which which to me, yeah, it does speak to different people being involved. But Owen Nares was at the end of his career by this point, wasn't he? I mean, he'd been a huge star in the 20s, and, you know, he's on his way out. There's of going to be a, or, a, a or, film, or a film. film. And so there's going to be a new generation coming through and they may have a theatre background, they may have worked with Basil Dean in, in Liverpool Rep, but the people coming through, the other technical people, that new things are happening. So I think, you know, no one, Owen Nares was definitely on the way out, his acting style. Also, I mean, he was only about 45, I think, when that film was made. But he looks every inch of it. I mean, the, the camera the camera is not kind to him. He's supposed to, to be him. a young man, isn't he? He's supposed yeah, to be a dashing young doctor. A dash, and, and the camera isn't kind to him. I mean... 
I just, you know, 45 isn't old at all. In fact, I think Alan Jays is probably about the same age, uh, even though he's supposed to be, I'm 40, and you'll think, oh my, you know. Um, But it is shocking to think that both of them are younger than I am now. (laughs) Which is horrifying. But yeah, the camera wasn't kind to Owen and it could be that, you know, that techniques had yet to be developed and makeup and and so on um but yeah he did look every inch of his 45 or whatever it was and and he was and clearly he his leading man days were past him so he had, did have a leading man in the silent period. Period. Yeah, 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 long time. yeah yeah loads of films so yeah. the, he's, he's the only person he's the only one of the cast that i was familiar with at all because he's in a Jesse Matthews film about the runaway bride yeah. in fact is it called the runaway bride where he's where he's also you're a bit like oh god you're a bit old for yeah, Jesse mate but it's a sort of comedy role it's, a, it's, a, it's like almost like a farce so, it's a, so it sort of suits it a bit more um, oh my wife's coming it's one of those roles um <laughs> But who, so the rest of the cast, are they all, who are, what's their status, their stature in this? I mean, for me, the the, the most well-known and famous was George Curzon, who played the title role, the impassive footman. He's the one I'm most familiar with. Betty Stockfeld, I've seen in one other film in which she was quite frankly as wooden as she is in that um, I quite like her in this I quite like, she's very she's very pretty and she's got a very very you know that she's Australian though isn't she she is Australian but I think she she moved here as a teenager okay. hence the, the plummy accent the hence the it's very BBC at Alexandra Pellis isn't it in a way that nobody speaks these days um and Alan Jays, I know, has been in other things. The one thing I can picture him in is the Scarlet Pimpernel, but I know I've seen him in other things. I mean, the thing with, with, with um, Quota Quickies, whenever I'm in Quickie land, my first thing is I'm always looking to see who can I see before they were famous? And I don't know, did anybody else spot the one person that I spotted? Oh, who was the cab driver? Okay, I didn't spot... I, I, the only person I spotted was George Coloris, who played uh, Owen Nez's valet butler who went, and that was about oh. four years before I think he went to America and joined Mercury Theatre with, and then obviously turned up in Citizen Kane. So he was playing a sort of comedy role there. But yeah, he was the only person I recognised, and of course he's not credited. The cab driver, that's an interesting one. I think he looked like someone you would all know the name of, but... Melmo. I don't. Mel, Mel knows everybody. I, did, I did. think um, that I don't know his name. Have another look and okay. Do, um. And I looked at the the nurse as well. I thought, oh, I wonder if that's somebody. And and I couldn't think. The only person I could see was George Glory. Obviously, Aubrey Mather was also in there, who played the other doctor, and he went on to have quite a significant Hollywood career as well. Even though he was quite, you know, relatively. I don't say old. Uh, He's obviously already relatively well known because he gets a credit. He at the actually beginning, gets which none a credit, of yeah. And then he goes off to Hollywood and 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 plays lots of butlers. But um, yeah, nice work, nice work if you can get it, you know. Um, but otherwise, yeah, George Curzon, I think for me was the the one that I knew because then he went on to being oh, well, young and innocent. I think is the the big thing if you remember that. Yeah. yeah. And funny enough, I was watching him a couple of weeks ago for something else I was researching. Uh, I was watching a film he was in called Java Head. Do you know that one? Yeah. And in that, he, I mean, he's very facially expressive. 
uh, like in that scene where he looked he, to me ironic looks like, for, the, for he, an impassive footman <laughs> you know I mean that bit he looks like Dracula he goes oh you know it's quite scary and then in Java Head he's an opium addict and 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 it manifests itself with a twist with a sort of facial twitch which then of course is integral to the plot when by the time he comes to make Young and Innocent with Hitchcock his facial tick which is the same one he uses in Java Head, is actually integral to the plot. It's what kind of solves the murder in the end. Um, but he's the only one I really recognised. And yeah, The other significant person involved in the film is, I'm um, sorry, I've got to rush it along because mm. th the crocodile's coming in soon, uh, is John Farrow. John Farrow. Yeah. Tell me who he is, because he's an interesting person. Well, when I saw his name, I have to say, I thought, no, it can't be the John Farrow. So I did have to Google it to make sure it was. And it was, of course, the John Farrow, another Australian who was a screenwriter. And he'd been in Hollywood and somehow had been enticed over here by Basil Dean, I think, uh, to write this. And then, of course, went back to Hollywood, married Maureen O'Sullivan, had loads of children, including Mia, and went on to be a significant director and screenwriter. And I think wrote the screenplay for Around the World in 80 Days. Is that correct? That certainly got an Oscar for that. And directed one of my favourite film noirs, The Big Clock with Charles Lawton. But yeah, he was a director of some significance. So he's very, very early in his career. This father-in-law of Woody Allen Woody and Al Andre Previn. Yes. Weird. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know. That'd be a, one for a pub quiz. A, a weird <laughs> pub quiz. <laughs> um, and I think we just got time to talk about Basil's organ, which, um, if because no, I could throw it open to the audience, but nobody's going to say tell us about Basil's organ. So I just have to. <laughs> Bring up the fact that earlier this week I tweeted this thing, which is uh, it was a little clip from a book I've been reading, and um, there was a photograph of the then Prince of Wales who became Edward the Eighth, the one who married Mrs. Simpson and was friendly with Hitler. Um, so this clip, I just want to read this clip. It says, during the shooting of the Impassive Footman, Ealing Studios were honoured by a royal visit. The Prince of Wales, still four years from his accession to the throne. So, like, four and a half years from his abdication, um, <laughs> had been invited by Jack Court Courtauld and was particularly fascinated by one of Ealing's best-known technical innovations, the mobile control board nicknamed the organ, which at the beginning of a take could start the camera turning, mark the film synchronisation, shut down the noisy air conditioning or heating system, sound the bell, light up the silent sign outside the stage, turn on the red light, switch off the telephones and lock the doors. In 1932, it's a very impressive piece of equipment, which I, I, I'd be impressed by that now. I think it's a 1930s Alexa, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, organ. Yeah. <laughs> do all the things you need to do at the start of a take. But it's, I mean, I suppose it's interesting that that is a sort of indication of how early this is in terms of the sound cycle. Lots of those things that it's turning off are things that will make a noise yeah. and that you want to cut out. Because in the silent, in the Hollywood silent studios, you just had set next to set next to set. It didn't matter what noise yeah. was spilling over from either yeah. side. And it didn't matter if the air conditioning made a load of noise. That was fine, but now you need the air conditioning turned off. Yeah. And also an indication that there was a bit of money in Ealing to have... To have an organ yes, like that, when um, an organ, you see. Twickenham didn't have it, I wouldn't have thought. No, they wouldn't have had no an Twickenham organ. organ. Well, it mentions Jack Jack Courtauld, was it? Yeah. And of course, Stephen Courtauld was an investor in ATP, and I mean they were 
they were filthy rich, weren't they? The Courtauld. Yes. They they so owned Eltham Palace. Eltham Palace. Yeah. So, all as a result oh. of fabric. Yeah. Man-made yeah. fabrics and yeah. plastic. Eltham Palace. Yeah, it was it was the home of the Courtauld family. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Stephen, that's, I think, that's was them the one that made it yeah. into that night Art Deco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I've never been there. I've, I've seen it on them. Oh, you totally oh, should go. I would really like it. I know. Who says this? Anybody who's interested in this period has to see Elton Palace. I spent my whole time looking at the old Owen's and flat. It's gorgeous with the, it, the wood panelling. Isn't and everything. it? Yes. Isn't you it? You want to get yourself to Elton Palace because yes. it's all like that. <laughs> I will. Do we have anything else from the audience before we let the crocodile in? Oh, there we go. How, how long would a movie like that have taken to make? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I think this would. I, I mean. Yeah, maybe three weeks on the floor. Not very long in movie-making terms. And notice how it's all, I mean, it's all studio work, so like, there's no kind of, there's no messing around. Uh, we'd have to look back over the cuttings. Is it the I same think. cast they had on stage? or No, and I'm not even sure if it was a stage show. I it, think was no, a novel, it, was it was a story. Oh, maybe Sapper, it wasn't. Yeah, not I thought it was a, so. a novel or a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, Quota Quickies, famously, they, they made them as fast as possible. And I think, yeah, three weeks would be the most it would take. Might just take a week. But I don't, this is, I mean, you know, I'm always saying this, this isn't the drossiest quotient of quickie possible. So no. it probably did take a bit longer. We than shielded you really, from those. Really, the really bad ones. I just thought it'd be worth talking a little bit about the representation of illness and disability in the film. So the, the, the character we're all meant to hate <clears throat> and boo um, in a very panto way is, is this apparent hypochondriac who then turns out <clears throat> you know, to not, to finally have something actually wrong with them, and and the kind of the idea of him being this, this sort of you know invalid and and the, the wife suffering because she's with an invalid, it and I can and it works for the story in terms of the way who, who we're meant to kind of cheer for and who we're meant to boo for, but also so after the First World War, I, I kind of I wondered if that was typical of that kind of the representation in, in film at that time because it felt a little bit offbeat, especially with the other characters explicitly referencing the war. Well, maybe we would dislike him. I mean, because I think he's a hypochondriac at the start. He does genuinely become ill, but he didn't go to the war. You know, he didn't suffer, and yet there he is going, "Oh, I've got this. I've got that." Oh, yes, I think that's the point. He, you know, he didn't suffer for the war, and yet he's claiming the credit of being yeah. ill, of having the after effects. I think it's okay to dislike him. <laughs> it's not very likely. But, I mean, yeah, you do find that, like, that character appears in quite a lot of Agatha Christie novels, doesn't he? The, the, the older hypochondriac guy who's just a sort of burden on everybody around him, but doesn't, you know, isn't, ob- isn't actually really ill. Any more for any more? Okay, so uh, let's just wrap that up. Mel... Have you got anything coming up apart from Talking Pictures TV? Um, what have I got coming up? Next week I'm at the Faversham Fringe doing something comedic, which has nothing to do with films. But uh, So if anybody's in Kent next Sunday, come and see me. Yeah, and then I'm going What's to the title of that show? It's called Standing at the Back, and it's got nothing to do with films. But my next show, I am going to go back to doing a film-related show, comedy show for the next one. So, And will we get to see... Old movies ruined my love. It's going to be another version of that. It's going ruined. to be something that... Saved, saved. Old movies saved. ruined my life. That's, <laughs> that is not the... Uh, no. <laughs> wrong, yeah, wrong one. Old movies saved yes. my life. 
so I'm going to do something uh, something around that theme as well ne- for, for the next show. So, yeah, comedy and old films are two things I love in one handy package. Yeah. Andy, you always do the Talking Picture TV podcast. And an extra shout for people who want to submit reviews. How would Please. they do that? Um, we have a Facebook page, Talking Pictures TV, the podcast. We have Twitter, TPTV podcast. Uh, we have an email address. We're still using the old Attaboy Clarence one, Talking Pictures at attaboyclarence.com. Uh, or just find me on social media, Mel Byron. There's, I think there's only one of me. And yeah, we'd love to have, have more reviews. Scott puts in some reviews. and But we'd love to have, as I say every time, we'd love to have more women. Uh, so many times I'm the only female voice on the podcast. So it would be lovely to have have some more I'm looking around at you here and uh, it'd be lovely to have some more female voices on there and the next film in two weeks time is I Lived With You uh, which is very very good and um, the uh, guest is do that thing they do on the radio the time is coming <laughs> up oh it's John Snelson phew uh, who's an author and uh, an expert on British musicals and on Ivor Novello and on Ida Lupino. So um, he'd be very interesting uh, to meet. So hopefully we'll see you all there and tell all your friends and uh, see you in a fortnight. You Thank you very much. Yeah. Right, the crocodile's doing what, two minutes. Thank you to Mel Byron for being such a great guest on the show do please consider taking part in the TPTV podcast. They welcome reviews from all sorts of members of the public, even you. And details about how to contribute can be found in the show notes for this episode at kinoquickies.com. Thanks also, of course, to our tireless soundman, Robin. You can find links to his other work on the show notes too. And thanks as ever to Paul and the crew at the Kino. The Kino Quickies podcast is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our resident quota quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Napper, of King's College London. But now, back to the impassive footman for the end of the film. Remember, this is going to be packed with spoilers, so if you don't want to know what happens and would rather watch the film yourself, feel free to press stop now. You'll find a link in the show notes at kinoquickies.com where you'll be able to buy the DVD of the film, and it really is very, very good. If you're leaving us now, bye-bye, and we'll hopefully see you at the Kino soon. But if you're sure you want to hear the spoilery ending, stick around. Remember, Grace and Brian are trapped in a web of blackmail spun by Grace's nasty husband, John. Brian has been asked to perform a life-saving operation on John. If he refuses to carry it out, John will spill the beans to the entire world about their affair. But if John dies during the risky procedure, the beans will still be well and truly spilled because he's lodged a bean-spilling letter with his solicitor with instructions to open it in the event of his death. Their only hope to avoid social and professional suicide is for Brian to operate and for John to survive. But should it work out that way, Brian and Grace will be forever separated as John has threatened to move abroad and take Grace with him. Let us continue. The following day, tensions are high at the hospital. The operating theatre is packed with surgeons keen to witness the great Brian Daventry's expert skills and new surgery technique. Grace waits nervously in Brian's office. John, before going under, demands one last conversation with the man who is both his rival and his saviour. Don't forget to give my wife the good news, Daventry. Many hours pass. Finally, the operation is over. Congratulations, 
Simpson's right yard Daventry. Complete triumph. Splendid bit of work. Marvellous A wonderful job. Well done. Well done. Come at once. Returning to his office to rejoin his love, Brian and Grace are reunited in silent grief. Some days later, Brian is standing awkwardly by John's fireplace at the Marwood home. In token of respect, my dear Mr. Daventry, for all the happy years you've given me with my wife. He hands him a folded card. Inside is a photograph of Grace and John on their wedding day. Brian flings it aside. <laughs> Can we go abroad next month? Provided you're careful during convalescence. <laughs> Any sudden shock might bring on cerebral hemorrhage. <laughs> I shall certainly be careful, for my wife's sake. There's nothing more I can do for you. No, but don't you realize, my dear Mr. Daventry, all I have done for you? I have made you famous. Your success is assured. <laughs> Aren't you thankful to me? With John's laughter <laughs> ringing in his ears, the defeated Brian leaves and is escorted to the drawing room by Grace. Simpson enters John's room with a letter. John reads the letter and looks affronted. Simpson, sir, those letters I gave you to post the day before my operation. Yes, sir. I asked my lawyers to return them to me. They say they have not received them. Where are they? Here, sir. You scoundrel. Simpson swiftly locks the doors and returns to John, defiantly standing over him, hands on hips. What are you doing? Someone might come in. Unlock those doors at once. Do you hear? Not so much noise, please. Will you kindly explain yourself? With pleasure, John Marwood. That's why I locked those doors. John reaches for the phone, but Simpson yanks the cord from its socket and dashes the glass from his hand. Always willing to learn, John Marwood. I took the precaution of listening at the keyhole that morning. This hardly contains an accurate statement of events, does it? A tissue of abominable lies from start to finish. You impertinent scoundrel. Give me back those letters at once. Do you hear? Sweating, John attempts to get to his feet but sinks back down in pain. Gently, Marwood, gently. Don't excite yourself. It will only cost you more in the end. Blackmail, eh? Well, you can get up out of that chair and go to the devil before I give you any more wages. You see, I'm not interested in wages any longer any more than I am in remaining your footman. Who are you? Give me time, Marwood. I'll give you a rope. Who are you? Just one of the millions that went to that comic war and left everything behind. You didn't go to the war, did you, Marwood? You preferred to stay at home and make money instead. Very important fella. Employed a number of secretaries, overworked them, underpaid them, and gave your profits to charity in exchange for decorations. It meant nothing to you that the wretched women were eating out their hearts in loneliness. You took advantage of the situation. Do you remember Polly Marshall, Marwood? That was my wife's name. But because you objected to married secretaries, she hid the truth from you. Then when I was given out as missing and it didn't matter any longer, you made love to her and she was driven to it to keep her job. Then when she was going to have a child, you let her down. I deny everything. Like you denied your fatherhood. I've not done with you yet. Simpson approaches John aggressively and stands over him. When I returned home, 
I found my wife dying of shame and hunger. Shame because she loved me, hunger because she was too proud to write and tell me the truth. But she did love me. Do you hear me? She did love me. Gleefully, Simpson watches as the cigar slips from John's fingers and the life slips from his body. Downstairs, Grace is of the opinion that John will be open to persuasion now that Brian has saved his life. Surely he'll give her her freedom now, out of gratitude. Grace and Brian go upstairs together to appeal to John's better nature. She enters the room and finds John's corpse sitting in the chair. (coughs) Gallantly, Brian escorts Grace from the room and returns to quiz the inscrutable Simpson. When did you see him last? Just after you did, sir. He appears to have had some shock. How could that be? I really couldn't say, sir. Most unfortunate tragedy. This might interest you, sir. He hands Brian the solicitor's letter, who reads it intently. The blackguard. Precisely, sir. A blackguard. You object if I burn this? If you don't, I shall, sir. Might I ask if you've decided on the cause of death? Hemorrhage of the brain, Simpson. Brought on by some great, shall we say, fear. He lived with fear, sir. Brian returns to comfort Grace, whilst Simpson, with a smile on his face and a skip in his step, buttons up his overcoat, puts on his bowler hat and leaves the Marwood home for the last time.